I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We'll read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. If you're visiting us this morning, we would love to have you follow along with us. If you didn't bring your own Bible, if you would desire to make eye contact with one of our joyful ushers at the back, they'd be happy to put a Bible in your hand to use this morning and also to take home. Let's begin in the reading of God's word, Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come into your presence together this morning, and we ask that you instruct us through your word. We ask that we intercede for one another, and that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you might allow me to exhort us as a body this morning. Father God, we just pray that in all of this, we would have a greater understanding, not just of of who we are, not just of what the church is, but above all else, Lord God, who you are, that you, Lord Jesus, would be exalted above all heavens. In the name of this matchless Savior, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we we started the fourth chapter of Ephesians, and we began to, to look at exhortation. What is it to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been calling? A calling that is from ages past, a calling that is holy and set apart, and a calling that has nothing to do with our own worthiness. We've been given now a vocation, a job. This week, we'll we'll understand that not only are we given a vocation, but we're given an opportunity, and we're given tools, we're given gifts to allow us to lead out that calling. We also 
came to understand through a, a sevenfold unity that Christ has given us a unity that we are called now to maintain, a unity that's characterized by having one body, the body of Christ, to have one spirit that indwells us and guarantees our inheritance, one hope, which is a living hope, one Lord, one common faith, one baptism, and one Father. This unity is central in what we've understood so far from chapter 4. But this week, Paul begins verse 7 with the word but. Last week, we started with therefore, and therefore told us that we had to look back at everything we understood from his instruction through chapters 1 and and chapter 2, and his intercession in chapter 3. And now, with this therefore, he tells us about this unity and this calling, and now there's the, the but. And he's going to tell us that in addition to this unity, us being one body, there's now a diversity. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 27 tells us that now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So as we, we undertake to understand what the Lord has for us in this week's message, we need to understand that we're all one body of Christ with individual members And as he has given us a calling that we are not worthy of, he's going to equip us as a church to accomplish his purposes. So beginning at verse 7, Paul tells us, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The word measure is is one that causes me to, to stop and pause and think about all that we've learned in Ephesians so far and all that we've understood about what is indescribable, what is immeasurable. Last week I mentioned to you that the Lord had put it on my heart to to go back and look at the minor prophet Zechariah. And one of the things that I found fascinating as I began the book of Zechariah, chapter one and chapter two, God gives a vision to the prophet Zechariah as, as he's ministering to the people coming out of captivity, being restored from their rebellion and being drawn into repentance. He promises them and instructs them to rebuild his temple a place that represents his presence, that represents his power, and that represents his love. And you know what what God shows Zechariah in a vision? He shows him a man with a measuring line, and he tells him to go out to Zion that's been desolate for 70 years. And he says, measure. Measure what is the width and the length. And I can't help but think that as Paul lays out the intercessory prayer for the Ephesians, he goes beyond those dimensions. Look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul prays for the believers, and he says, May you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a a love that's beyond measurement, beyond what our minds can understand. In the first chapter of Ephesians, verses 18 and 19, Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. See, the the words that Paul is trying to use to describe the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, The lavishnesses of his mercy go beyond what we can measure. 
immeasurable, lavish. Do we understand that? This is incredible. So when Paul uses the word measure, we kind of got to wonder, he's already told us we can't measure this. But what he's trying to tell us now in, in this seventh verse of Ephesians chapter four is that there is enough grace now that there's giftings to every single member of his body. There's enough grace to go around. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is important for us to understand because his grace is given to each individual believer, each individual member of the body according to the grace that he has poured out for us. Romans 12, verses six and seven says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them in proportion to our faith. If in service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. There's enough grace to go around. Each believer gets a gift. Now, it's important to understand that this is a, a blanket statement. Everyone gets a gift. But we need to be mindful that Paul's letter is addressed to the saints, to those who are in the church. Does everyone get a gift? Those who are in Christ, those who are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, receive a gift. This shouldn't be confused with a natural ability. God gives natural abilities through common grace to every human being. But that's not to be confused with a spiritual gift. You could be a, a gifted pianist and a gifted musician, and you could fill a concert hall with beautiful music. But if you're not indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and you're not believing with your, your heart and professing with your mouth that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you would not, could not, and should not lead God's people in worship. Praise God, the, the gifted people that lead at this church, lead worship, are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And what they're demonstrating isn't just a natural ability, it's a spiritual gift. Furthermore, you could be a, an eloquent speaker, the president of your local Toastmasters chapter, and put together a really nice outline and deliver a really compelling speech. But if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit... If you don't believe in your heart that Christ is Lord and profess him with your mouth, then you would not, should not, and could not handle the word of God. Finally, in this list that we see in Romans here, we, we mention someone who gives, right? In the natural world, there's, a, there's the philanthropist, the one who gives away money generously. They might help kids with potable water in sub-Saharan Africa or an animal pet shelter. And those generosity things are a reflection of God's common grace, right? But only one who is filled with the Spirit of God, who has believed in his heart and professed with his mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, is able to exercise the spiritual gift of giving that's described here. So as we, we begin to understand what Paul has for us, this diversity of giftings, we need to make the distinction between what is a natural ability and what is a spiritual gift. As it pertains to spiritual gifts, if you would, just turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just a quick survey. Uh, Brother Chris read this for us this morning. But a few things that we should notice. In the fourth verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, there's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. 
This is important for us to understand that, that there's a distinction in how God has wired each of us. When I was a kid, my grandmother was very careful to make sure that each of us got the same Christmas card and we all got a crisp $2 bill. It had to be egalitarian. It had to be the same for every grandkid. Such is not with the grace of Jesus Christ. There is grace for every member to receive a gift, but that which he gives out, he gives out based on our unique desires and and our unique wirings that he has innately given us. Chapter 7 or sorry, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, to each, is given the common, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And this is telling us why we have the gifts. This is important. The gifts are never to be self-exalting. The gifts are never to draw attention to ourselves. The gifts are for the common good. They're for the purposes of the, the body. When he gives us those tools to do our vocation, They're to complete his purposes for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. In verse 11, Paul says, All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. In this we see God's sovereignty. He gives out the gift that he desires to the one who he desires for the purpose of edifying the whole of the body. So as we begin to understand what, what Paul has for us in this portion of Ephesians chapter 4, we need to understand that there's a, a diversity of gifts. There's enough of God's grace to give to each member. And as we, we saw in that, that first portion, Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, as he's describing what is immeasurable, I, I wanted to, uh, to point out that we're promised a future gift, which is our inheritance. That's been set aside for us in heaven. We have the the sealing of the Holy Spirit to tell us that we're going to have that gift. But he gives us a gift now, too. And we're going to unpack what what some of these gifts are as we move through this morning's text. Ephesians 4, verse 8. Paul shifts gears a little bit, and he says, The grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he says, Therefore it says... And I'm going to stop there because this is a a marker that we often see in Scripture. In our English Bible, sometimes we actually get the next part of the text indented or in quotes or in italics or some sort of way to let us know that this is a reference that Paul is making to another portion of Scripture. Isn't that beautiful how Scripture refers to Scripture? It's all woven together as a divine tapestry with Christ as its author, with Christ as its subject, and Christ as the recipient of all of the glory proclaimed in Scripture. What Paul says here is, therefore it says, and now we know he's going to be pointing to a Scripture. And Brother Chris let the cat out of the bag this morning. The text that he he made reference to is Psalm 68, verse 18. And Paul says it, and he says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives when he gave gifts to men. Now something peculiar happens in Paul's citation of this verse. If we look carefully, it says here, when he, we know by now this refers to Christ Jesus, right? When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. The verse we saw in Psalm says, it talks about a a triumphant king and it may be referring to, to King David and we know in that particular passage that the conquering king takes tributes from those whom he has conquered. But Paul says, This conquering Christ gives gifts. 
different commentaries offer different views on this. One is that maybe the, the Hebrew translation is tough to work with and the word for give and the word for take are very similar. Another possibility is that Paul, as he was writing from prison in Rome, didn't have a copy of the Psalter handy and, and accidentally misquoted it. Okay? Maybe he was, uh, despite being a Jew of the Jew and a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he misquoted a psalm. Not likely. What's likely is that Paul had in view a Davidic conquering king figure. And I want to show you an example of what would have likely come to mind for Paul and those who read this text with furrowed brow, trying to understand what it is that Paul is trying to say. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 20, we have an example, in, and in fact, this particular account might well be what David is singing of in this 68th Psalm. I'll read the, the chapter. 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, it's like the seasonal battle time, right? Joab led out the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem, and Joab struck down Rabbah and overthrew it. And David took the crown of their king from his head. He found that it weighed a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it, and led, set them to labor with saws and iron and picks and axes. And, David, and thus David did to all the cities of the Ammonites, and then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. You see, this, this is a conquering king. He takes the, the crown off of the defeated king, and he takes the people prisoner and sets them to work, and he takes the spoil. That's what we expect a conquering king to do. But Paul, as he unpacks this verse and he changes the words, flips the script on us. Because Paul is far more interested in not just ecclesiology, he's not just telling us how the church is set up, but he's interested in Christology. He's interested in telling us that Christ, the conquering king, is now going to, in his grace, give gifts to those whom he has conquered. Isn't that incredible? Looking again at Psalm 68, verse 18, there's a particular word that I see in this that's incredible. It says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord may dwell there, right? Even among the, the rebellious. So those who have been taken captive by force must pay tribute. But if you flip this around as Paul does, that means that even the rebellious get gifts. Think of that for a moment. The church is comprised of those who were far off. The church is comprised of those who were dead in our sins. And as he comes as the conquering king, then he reparts gifts because of his grace. Christ's love is on display in how these gifts are sovereignly given out. Verse 9 in Ephesians chapter 4, returning to our key text this morning, is done parenthetically. Most translations show this in a parenthesis, and Paul is trying to help us make sure we're perfectly clear on what he's referring to when he cites this psalm. It says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, that is the earth? So we're talking about a conquering king who not only ascended, but before he ascended, he also descended. 
couple of verses to help us understand that. One is the words of Christ himself in John chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Jesus says in, in his discussion with those around him, he says, if I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And to understand the importance of what is being said there, we need to understand that not only are we talking about God sovereignly moving his incarnate self from heaven to earth, but he's doing that purposefully. He's doing that because his descension is condescension. And that's no clearer than the passage we all know and love in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 7 and 8 describe what Christ did. It says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, this conquering king had, had every full right to ascend to the highest place because he descended first. He descended out of love for us to bring the word near to us and to show us that gentle and humble conduct with which our calling ought to be characterized. Verse 10, included in that parenthetical remark, says, He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. The ascension of the conquering gift giver must be forefront in our minds. One of the, the highlights of this year of seeing our church grow was Brother Sean preaching the Easter service, which had the, resur the resurrection clearly in view. It's Easter, right? But he also had a focus on the ascension. One of the commentaries I read said that most churches that are gospel-centered do a great job proclaiming the incarnation of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, but not enough attention is put on the ascension. You see, he is the head of the church. He is above all things. His supremacy is the heart of the gospel. Because his supremacy helps us understand where we fit in regards to that. His supremacy helps us understand how much he gave up in coming in human form and humbling himself and becoming obedient to death, even his death on the cross. May we never forget the ascension. In his resurrection, we have power as believers. In his ascension, we have victory as believers. This idea of ascension and descension is something that harkens back to the book of Deuteronomy. And, and this will help us understand a little bit what Paul is trying to explain here. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Paul gives a, a nod back to Deuteronomy and, and what he's going to tell us. And I want us to understand in this what's being said about Christ, the conquering giver. And before I do that, I want to point out that Psalm 68 that we read together not only points to what would have been David as a conquering king proceeding back with his captives to Jerusalem, but it also mentions Sinai. It also mentions how God scatters his enemies, pulls them out of captivity, marches them through the wilderness, and during his time in the wilderness, what does he do? He takes Moses and he brings him up to Mount Sinai. And on that mountain, he gives him the law. 
Let's look at Romans chapter 10, verses 5 and on. Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, when Paul's playing around with these words, ascend and descend, he's got not only conquering David in mind, and he's not only got Christ in mind, but he's also got Moses. What did Moses do? Moses ascended to the mountain, and he brought down the law. And what did the law do to us? When we had the law near us, Deuteronomy tells us that, that now it's not up in heaven, and it's not on the other side of the sea, it's near us. And what does the law do to us? It shows us our unrighteousness. It shows us that we cannot meet God's standard of holiness. So then when Paul tells us of one who has descended and come to dwell amongst us, what did he bring us? Did he bring us law? Christ brought us grace. He brought us grace. And, and what does that grace do? That grace is drawn near to us. And it shows us that while we are guilty and while we are unrighteous, that his righteousness is available to us. You see that? Moses brought the law, you're unrighteous. Christ brought us grace and says, I will be your righteousness. As we unpack all that, that is in this for the church this morning, please understand that you may have many natural gifts. You may be a recipient of God's common grace, but if you don't understand that God came down from heaven in the form of Jesus Christ to show you his grace and to offer you his righteousness, the rest of this isn't going to make any sense to you. You need to understand that God came in human form, humble and lowly. And gave himself up for us. He shed his blood so that this law that we couldn't possibly accomplish, he'll be our righteousness. He'll stand in our place and offer us that. So that we can now understand that his grace is immeasurable. There is nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you have ever thought, nothing that you have ever been that cannot be forgiven by the grace of Jesus Christ. And because of that, his grace continues being made new every morning. And it's given to you now, not only through the form of salvation, but also for, through the body of Christ being part of one family, one body with many members. And that same grace now gifts us to be a part of growing that family. Isn't that incredible? There's nothing like this. There is no message that will transform our understanding of the, the reality that we live without seeing the person and the work of Jesus Christ and his grace. He descended, and now he is ascended. Proverbs 30, verse 4, if you want to write this verse down, is one that, that just brought worship into my heart. In Proverbs, the question is asked, who ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind into his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. If you don't know how to answer that question today, please speak with someone sitting near you. Look for one of the elders, one of the deacons in this church, 
and understand what is his name and what is his son's name. Don't leave without being able to answer that question. Returning to our text in Ephesians chapter 4, we come out of this parenthetical remark. We now understand that the Christology that Paul wants us to see is in plain view. He's given us grace. It's the conquering giver that has done it. And now he's going to actually get into this diversity of gifts. He's going to tell us what a couple of these are. For those of you who might have uh, looked at the email Anne sent out, there was a PDF that you can download that makes mention of a couple of different places where Paul lists spiritual gifts. Now, in none of the lists was Paul trying to be comprehensive. This is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. The lists somewhat overlap. In Romans chapter 12, we see gifts like service and like encouragement and giving and mercy. In the 1 Corinthians chapter 12 passage, we see gifts like wisdom and knowledge and interpretation of tongues. And in 1 Corinthians, the back half of chapter 12, we see other gifts like the gift of helps. And they're all defined as, as different characteristics of what a person can do. But uniquely, the list of gifts that we find in Ephesians are gifted types of people. There's five of them. And you might choose to write these in your bulletin under the section that says equipping for ministry because these are five different types of people, five different groups of people out of all believers that Christ uniquely gives to his church. We're going to look at these together. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Tough list, right? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. It starts out just a little bit difficult because some of these words are a bit foreign to us. What do we mean by the word apostle? Well, there's three different sort of New Testament senses where we could find the word apostle. One is in a very general sense. And this is in a general sense of of all Christians. In John chapter 13, verse 20, Jesus talks about his disciples. He's sending them out and he says, if anyone receives you as my messengers, they've received me. You see, those that Christ sends out with his message in a very general sense are apostles. A second sense of the word apostle is that which is used in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament of someone who's been given a special gospel mission to carry out, a message to be sent within the body of the church. One particular example of this is Tychicus. Fun name, no one in their church has yet named their child Tychicus. There are some that have boys on the way. It's a great option. Tychicus is mentioned at the tail end of Colossians and at the tail end of Ephesians. If we look at Ephesians chapter 6, this apostle, this messenger is brought up. Verse 21 of chapter 6 says, So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So Tychicus is an apostle sent by Paul to carry a message from Rome to the churches at Ephesus and Colossae and other places. The third and most probable sense of the term apostle is that of which is used to refer to someone who is an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. Someone who physically, visually saw Jesus Christ during his time on earth. The disciples, some of the disciples were also apostles. Take Peter, for example. Peter walked with Jesus, frustrated Jesus, 
learn from Jesus, but ultimately he had the opportunity to see the risen Christ. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who else was an apostle? Well, Ephesians 1, verse 1, what do we say? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. These collection of, of men were part of the first century church and they had personally seen Christ and taken his message to other churches, to establish churches, to share the gospel for a particular purpose. It's with this understanding that we recognize as a church that our understanding of the apostleship is that it ended after the first century church. The last of the apostles to, to leave the earth physically was John. After he concluded writing the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, John passed, and the scripture tells us that it's at an old age. And that ends what we understand as the gifting of apostleship. The second gifting that is mentioned in Paul's list here is that of prophets. He's given prophets, or apostles, and now he gives prophets. What do we mean by prophets? If you would, turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts is uh, not intended to be a doctrinal book per se, but to give us historical accounts of what God did through the first century church. These are actual things that happened that help us understand how the gospel was disseminated through Christ's plan. Beginning at verse 24 of Acts 15, we've got the Jerusalem council here. And the brothers talked among themselves, and it says, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we have given them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. You see, this is the, the church sending out those who are the first century apostles. And if you skip ahead to verse 32, it says, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they spent, much time, after they spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of God with many others also. So you can see in this historical account in Acts that there's people who are named as apostles. And there's those who are named as prophets. Specifically, I call out for you Judas. And likely the Judas here is Jude, who wrote our really long one-chapter epistle, right? Jude. He's considered a prophet by the writer of the book of Acts. And also Silas, it says, who were themselves prophets. So if we go back and we try to understand what Paul is telling us in verse 11 of, of chapter 4, he says, among these gifts that he's giving to the church, and he gave the apostles and the prophets. The ESV uses a, the word the, right? The, those of us using the New American Sean version, I'm sorry, the New American Standard version, will understand that the word there is such as. He's given us such as apostles, such as prophets, but the ESV uses the word the. And many commentators understand this to mean that 
Paul had particular group of people in mind that he's describing as part of that gifted group. And we just read who they were in Acts chapter 15. Paul has in mind that particular people like Jude and like Silas and like Barnabas and even himself were part of that gifted group that Christ had given to the church. We understand this all the better if we look back at Ephesians 2 verses 19 and 20. Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He's not talking about Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. He's talking about New Testament prophets like Jude and Silas. Those are the ones that that were coming alongside the cornerstone key message of Jesus Christ and upon which we generations later, and in different geographies are being built up. The foundation, unchanged. Christ is the cornerstone. The early church is the bedrock on which our doctrine and our faith is centered. That means that if at any point you hear of an apostle or a prophet coming to speak at Pacific Hope Church, that that contradicts our understanding of what's happening with scripture. The deacons will actually be handing out stones at the back door, okay? No apostles, no prophets. The work of the Lord at this particular time, as Paul is explaining to it, was for the purpose of giving us the sound doctrine upon our church today, 2022, San Diego, California, is based upon. Those doctrinal truths, unwavering. John Stott, one of our favorites, gives us a a little bit of an understanding of how we might then apply apostles and prophets. If there's not apostles and prophets, then why are we studying this verse, right? But John Stott says something very interesting. This is from his commentary on Ephesians. And he says, But as with the apostles, so with the prophets, having first established the uniqueness of the original teachers of the church, we then have to ask if there is a subsidiary gift of some kind. It seems right to answer yes, but then to confess that we do not know for certain what it is. Love that humility. And Stott continues and says, some see it as a special gift of biblical exposition, an unusual degree of insight into the word of God, so that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, modern prophets hear and receive the word of God, not however as a new revelation, but as a fresh understanding of the old. Do we understand that, church? Stott continues that final statement and he says, it's understood that a prophet has a gift of insight into either the biblical text or the contemporary situation, what's going on in culture around us, or both, namely a powerful combination of accurate exposition and relevant application. That's what a prophet looks like in the church today. Understanding that, we're going to move on to the third in our list of five unique giftings that Christ in his grace has given to the church. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists. The evangelists, there's a couple named in scripture. One is found in Acts 21 verse 8, and that's Philip. Philip was uniquely gifted as an evangelist. I love the account of how Philip's going and the the Ethiopian eunuch is on his way. And Philip's like, hey, what you reading? He's like, I'm reading Isaiah, but who knows what it says. And Philip gets in the chariot with him and he expounds to him the message of the gospel. This is someone who had already gone to Jerusalem to worship, had already gone having some hunger in his life, but Philip as an evangelist was able to discern that God was doing a work in this eunuch's life. 
And he came alongside him, and he clearly explained the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what an evangelist does. Timothy. Paul refers to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, chapter 5, as having the gift of evangelism. Timothy went to places like Ephesus, and he was moved from place to place, and he was uniquely gifted to share the gospel. There are evangelists in our church. There are latent evangelists who have been given the gift who now need to exercise it in our church. Boyce, in his commentary on Ephesians, refers to the evangelists as obstetricians, those who are gifted in birthing new life through a clear presentation of the gospel, those who can come alongside neighbors and family members and break down what oftentimes we use big Sunday words and explain to them the, the simplicity of what it is that Christ has done for us. The truth of the matter is, you're a mess. I'm a mess. We're sinners, but God loves us and sent his son Jesus to die in our place. Our kids should be able to do that. Some of our kids do it really well. Praise God for that. The church needs to have gifted evangelists. Paul then goes on to our our fourth list of particularly gifted people. He goes from apostles to prophets to evangelists and now to shepherds. Curiously, one of the few places in the New Testament where we can really use the word pastor is in this particular text. He's gifted some to be pastors. And Boyce again takes this and he says, you know, an evangelist is an obstetrician, but a pastor is a pediatrician. I love that. A pastor is a a pediatrician. In my time in Honduras, one of the elders that I served and was cared for by and served alongside was a pediatrician. And he had a, a special phone that not everybody had. And with that special phone, church members could reach out to him if our kids are sick in the middle of the night. If one of our kids had a a broken arm, we could reach out and get help from this particular elder. If we had a particular need, we could take our kid to him and he'd use the biggest needle I've ever seen and vaccinate them, right? But as I thought about that, I'm like, what an incredible analogy. A, A pediatrician, a shepherd will do those wellness checks. Hey, just checking in on you. How you doing this year? You growing like you're supposed to be growing? Where do you fit on this, this chart of growing? Are you growing? Or if there's something going around, yeah, we're going to vaccinate you. There's some false teaching out there. We're going to give you a a little vaccination of of doctrinal truth, right? And they're going to be available to care for those members of the flock. A pediatrician. What What an amazing way to describe that. And as we unpack that, that idea of, of pastoral care, we understand too that that's right next to the word teacher. That fifth diverse gift that Paul lays out for us, he says he gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And some translations sort of pack those things together, like shepherd and teacher as, as one expression. Greek's not real precise with commas. Commas are important. Um, In this particular case, it seems like they ought to be separated, shepherds and teachers. And Stott says, we should say that, well, every pastor must be a teacher gifted in the ministry of God's word to people, whether to a congregation or groups or individuals. Not every Christian teacher is also a pastor. There's a distinction there. Now, who is called to to be a, a teacher and one who instructs the word of God? 
Yeah, I think that'd be all of us, right? To different capacities, instructing our children, instructing our spouses, instructing those who are in our Sunday school classrooms, teachers. I'm going to read you one more stock quote, if I could, as it pertains to shepherds and teachers specifically as the list of these five things is being wrapped up. Stott makes the observation that all five gifts in some way, whether it be apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, or teacher, all tie in in some way to the gift of teaching, to the ministry of teaching. He says, although there are neither apostles nor prophets in the original sense today, there are evangelists who preach the gospel, pastors who tend the flock, and teachers who expound the word. Indeed, they are urgently needed. Nothing is more necessary for the building up of God's church in every age than an ample supply of God-gifted teachers. And he says, Yet I wonder if this need has ever been greater than in our own day. In some areas of the global south, great people movements are taking place in large numbers. In some cases, whole villages and tribes are accepting Christ, and the church growth rate exceeds the population growth rate. Oh, that that would be true in our country. Oh, that that would be true here. And he says, this exciting fact brings with it both problems and dangers, however. The newly baptized converts are spiritual babies, and they're prone to sin and error, almost defenseless against false teaching. Above all else, they need teaching from the word of God. In some situations, believe it or not, missionaries are calling for a moratorium on converts. For heaven's sake, they pray to God, don't give us any more because we don't know what to do with the thousands we already have. This is definitely a different time and place, right? And Stott says, I urge my sometimes charismatic friends, therefore, who sometimes to be preoccupied with the lesser gifts, to remember Paul's statement to eagerly desire the greater gifts and to consider whether these are teaching gifts because it is teaching that builds up the church and teachers who are needed the most. You see, to, to manage those who come to faith and to help them grow up and mature, which we're going to talk about in a minute, there has to be an ample supply of teachers who are able to impart sound doctrine. That's why God gives us this gifting. Now, verse 12 tells us why we have these five different groups of people, why we have what can be lumped together as giftings that equip sound teaching in the church. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is really important. When I was a, a kid, my, my grandma, the same one that gave us all $2 bills, would refer to her pastor at a Lutheran church as the minister. And whenever she referred to the minister, I pictured the guy with the black shirt and the white clerical collar, right? And that was the minister. But you know what? The ministry is the ministry of the saints. Who's in ministry here? I think we all are, right? I think we all are. We are all called to do gospel ministry. The work of those who are teachers and those who are pastors is to equip every saint to participate in the life of ministry. The ESV commentary on this says, the task of church leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Their goal is not simply to do the work of ministry, but rather to equip all believers to somehow participate in ministry. This passage strongly supports the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, which teaches that there's no special status of priest among Christians. All are called as priests to serve God. The professionalization of the ministry, however, threatens this important doctrinal commitment. There is often a feeling that paid staff, the professionals, should do the work of ministry and laity should be served by them. Paul and God's vision for the church is different. Leaders equip the church to carry out the work of ministry effectively. 
May I exhort and encourage you in this church? That passage resonates, okay? What we have experienced as a church this last year is understanding how we've been equipped. And to the glory of God, to the praise of God, people have stepped up. There is stepping up to do gospel ministry. Some of us may have said to our own shame, man, I really feel like God is calling me to to do more ministry. (laughs) What were you called to before? right? But praise God, he is doing this in our midst. And if we yield ourselves to him and we rely upon the gifts that he's given to us, he will continue to do that. And that's for for his glory. That is for the growth of the church to equip the saints for ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Verse 13, Paul begins to help us understand what that building up is supposed to look like. Does that mean we have more people here? Not necessarily. Does it mean that we have more people participating in the great amount of work that needs to be done? Perhaps. But ultimately, you know what it means? It means a church that looks like Jesus Christ. That looks like Christ. Thank you for that amen. Verse 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Right? What does this mean? We're, we're seeing now that we need to attain to, we need to live up again to the, the unity that we've already been given. And we need to live up to a correct knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. I talked to a new friend last week that mentioned a passage, and I'm going to bring us to that passage this week, Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 11 talks about growing up in maturity. Now, whenever we've read this, we tend to look at it as individual maturity. What do I need to do to grow up maturity-wise, right? But this is actually, again, a collective statement. What does this need to say about how we grow as a church? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 says, About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, and for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washing. And he goes on and says, church, grow up. Let's have some some substance to our diet, some maturity in what it is that we're doing. And and those of you who have been in this for a while, he says, shouldn't some of y'all be teaching by now? What an interesting statement. What a convicting statement. What a gospel-centered statement to be making to the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. One commentary I read there described that not just as this ethereal, transcendent church with Christ as its head, but also to look at the fullness of Christ in human form. Consider that maturity would demonstrate what Christ demonstrated. We saw last week his gentleness and his humility. Does the church demonstrate that? That which Christ did in human form, do we demonstrate that? Patience and forbearance? 
Do we demonstrate that? Love? Do we demonstrate that? That's what the maturity looks like. But I do recognize that we're a collection of sinners saved by grace. Until Christ is, is completed with us and we're in glory, or he comes again, this is the goal that we have, the standard that is set, that which we need to walk in a worthy calling and have that as our goal. He says, until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, when is that going to happen? When he comes again. Until then, that's our high standard. That is what we have been called to. But may we never grow weary of that being our goal. In verse 14, Paul goes again and, and takes this topic of maturity, maturity in our faith, and he says, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the first thing is, you've got to look at this child thing. One preacher that I listened to talked about how children are. Children are like, well, this is really great. I love this toy. They play with it for a couple of minutes and then want a different one, Right? Sometimes we do that. This church doesn't work. I'm going to go to a different one. Or sometimes within the church, we'll come up with this thing and we're, we're fascinated with this trend, this cultural shift that's happening. We're like, oh, our church hasn't really adapted to that one yet. We should probably take that one on, right? We should, we should conform to the culture. We should be relevant. But what Paul says there is, be careful of that. He says, that we may long, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and by, by deceitful schemes. There's so much to unpack in this. I wish we had another week just to look at this. But one of the words that's used for cunning and crafting there is the word that we get the word dice from. It's like loaded dice, right? You throw a trick die. And he's like, don't fall for trick dice. Don't fall for that which is fake doctrine, which is fake news, which is trying to make a church culturally relevant as opposed to standing on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. It's interesting that Paul uses the term waves, tossed to and fro like waves. This should be familiar to us from the book of James, right? You doubt in faith, what happens? Tossed to and fro, tossed to and fro. But if you would, please go with me to uh, that huge book of Jude, that one page. Let's see how fast we can go. Something else happens in this analogy that's used here. And we see that those who are the, the waves, Jude 1, 12, and 13, the whole letter that Jude the prophet writes is about addressing false teachers, those who have infiltrated the church with ideas that are contrary to that of Christ Jesus. And here's what he says. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Something that's underwater, right? The, the ship will run aground on a hidden reef. And the love feasts are the church gatherings. So these are underneath the surface of the water. You might run into them. And he says, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. You see that? He personifies these waves. In Ephesians, we're told, don't get tossed to and fro by the waves. And in Jude, we're told, the waves are people who have infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ with bad doctrine. Watch out, church. 
Watch out. Going back to, to Ephesians chapter 14, we're drawing to the end of this text, and we might do a little bit of rewind and replay next week because there's so much to be said, but the next thing we, that we see here is as we move towards understanding conformity to Christ, right? All of this is about gifting the church. We've been saved by his grace. We've been gifted by his grace. And now we're being called to, to grow up in maturity in faith and conformity to Christ. Verse 15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want us to think for just a minute about this expression, speaking the truth in love. I spent a lot of time doing this and did a little bit of research with um, a few brothers and sisters, but we use this a lot. We use this speaking the truth in love a lot. And I'm afraid to tell you that sometimes we've used it out of context. Sometimes we use speaking the truth in love as a code speak to say, could you just please ignore the plank in my eye for a minute? I'd like to talk to you about the speck that's in your eye. I mean, really, being honest, that's how we use speaking the truth in love around here. But it turns out that this is actually not very well translated. It's actually supposed to say truthing in love. The word speaking doesn't belong there, but truthing is kind of a weird verb, right? It doesn't exist. We're supposed to live out our doctrinal convictions in love. We're supposed to do this in a way that's compelling, that's edifying, that convinces the world around us of the hope that we have. At the risk of overquoting Stott, I'm going to give you one more for the day. Stott says, with regards to speaking the truth in love, he says, Paul calls for a balanced combination of the two. Speaking the truth in love is not the best rendering of his expression, for the Greek verb makes no reference to our speech. Literally, it means truthing in love, or living out, or maintaining, or doing the truth. Thank God that there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. But sometimes they are clearly lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch. Their muscles ripple and the light of battle enters their eyes. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. Others make the opposite mistake. They are determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit love for their brothers and sisters, but in order to do so are prepared to even sacrifice the central truths of revelation. Both of these tendencies are unbalanced and unbiblical. Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love, and love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls us to hold the two together, which should not be difficult for spirit-filled believers, since the Holy Spirit himself is the spirit of truth. And the first fruit of his love, of his, the first of the fruits of the spirit is love. There is no other route than this, than to a fully mature Christian unity. I had to quote the brother because I couldn't have said it better myself, right? Like, this is what we are called to. We're not called to be so doctrinally stout and so reformed and so Calvinist and so these other things that we're angry, <laughs> We're supposed to demonstrate love. We're supposed to demonstrate love, but that doesn't mean we're going to hold hands with every church in town. We're going to guard doctrine. But we got to do both. Truthing in love. And all of this, church, is so that Christ might be exalted to his appropriate place. I want to end this morning's uh, exhortation by encouraging you, church, that Christ has saved us by his grace, He's united us and given us a unity that he achieved. It's up to us to maintain that.
It's up to us to maintain it. And all of that is so that we are recipients of, of his good, right? Or is it maybe for his glory? Or maybe it's both, for the praise of, of his glory. Ephesians chapter one, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter one, starting at verse 15, ending with this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you only by way of the blood of your son, Jesus. We have access to you. We are invited into your loving presence because of what you've done on our behalf. Thank you, Lord God, that you have given us this calling. We ask, Lord God, that this week you would allow us to be worthy of that calling, that you would allow us to live out the unity that you have called us to, that you would live, allow us to live out those doctrinal truths that we understand from scripture with great love, that you would be exalted, that our church would be grown, that sinners would come to faith, and that your word would be shared in San Diego and beyond. We pray all of this through your power, based on your immeasurable grace, for your glory. Amen.